Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep Course of Empire by Richard Wilson. This is first published in Infinity Science Fiction, February 1956. There's actually uh, two stories, at least two stories in this issue by uh, Richard Wilson. The other one's under the uh, pseudonym Edward Halibut. And uh, I'm, I'm not a super expert on Richard Wilson. I, I, I think I've read other stories by him, but um, I studied up pretty good on his, uh, his biography. And uh, he's an old Futurian, very early in science fiction fandom. He's an academic and uh, based on this and at least one other story I've read by him, uh, actually, I, I'm pretty sure I read more than that. Um, he's a funny guy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So. You know, for those people who don't catch the reference, the Futurian is not a, that's a capital F. Mm. That's a, a group of writers uh, with included, for example, Fred Pohl. Mm-hmm. So they were an, an important group of writers, historically speaking, in the development of science fiction. And they all knew each other. Mostly hung out in New York. Mm-hmm. One of the one of the curious facts about Richard Wilson is he was one of the few, uh, w- one of some of the Futurians who were not excluded from a world con because of drama. Um, the, <laughs> I, I, I've been researching way too much about uh, world con and who gets excluded and. You know, the, it, it continues to this day, and I'm, like, totally uninterested in it. It just so happened that it came up in his biography. Um, and um, I'm like, no, I like the stories. I don't like the drama. <laughs> um, and this is well, a cute little relaxing story uh, that's funny and uh, puts us in our place, I think. Hmm. Okay, you've told people how you want them to read it. Let's see if they agree. <laughs> we'll see. All right. Yep. Course of Empire by Richard Wilson. The older man sat down on the grassy bank on the hill overlooking the orchard. The autumn sun was bright, but the humidity was low and there was a breeze. The younger man sprawled next to him. Cigarette, he asked. Thanks, said Roger Boynton. He looked across the valley past the apple trees to the fine white columned house on the hill beyond. He smiled reminiscently. A friend of mine once owned that house, a fellow commissioner in world government. He and I used to sit on this very hill sometimes. We'd munch on an apple or two that we'd picked up on our way through the orchard wine saps, they're called. You were telling me about the colonizing, said Alistair gently after a pause. The older man sighed. Yes. He put out the cigarette carefully, stripped it, scattered the tobacco, and wadded the paper into a tiny ball. I was commissioner of colonies. I had to decide after my staff had gathered all the data who would be the best man to put in charge. It was no easy decision, I can imagine. You can't really. There were so many factors, and the data were actually quite skimpy. The way it worked out to be candid with you, was on the basis of the best guess, and some of the guesses were pretty wild. We knew Mars was sandy, for instance, so we put a Bedouin in charge. That pleased the Middle East in general, and Jordan in particular. Jordan donated a 1,000 camels under 0.4.4. I I beg your pardon, said Alistair. That's not double talk. 0.4 
was the old terrestrial program for underdeveloped countries. World government adopted it and broadened it. Mars is the fourth planet, so he traced 4.4 in the air, stabbing a finger at the imaginary point. 0.4.4. It was undoubtedly somebody's little whimsy in the beginning, but then it became accepted for the descriptive term that it was. I see. The young man looked vague. He stubbed out his cigarette carelessly so that it continued to smolder in the grass. Venus was the rainy planet, Boynton said, looking with disapproval at the smoking butt, though he did nothing about it. So we put an Englishman in charge. England sent a crate of alligators. The young man looked startled. Alligator raincoats, Boynton said. Things weren't very well organized. Too many things were happening too fast. There was a lot of confusion, and although the countries wanted to do what was best, no one knew exactly what that was. So they improvised as best they could on the basis of their little knowledge. Was it a dangerous thing? (laughs) The little knowledge? No, not dangerous, just inefficient. Then there was Jupiter. We didn't bother about Mercury, although for a time there was some uninformed talk about sending an equatorial African to do what he could. Who went to Jupiter? Alistair asked. The United States clamored for Jupiter and got it. The argument was that the other planets would be a cinch to colonize because of their similarity to Earth, but that Jupiter needed a real expert because it had only its surface of liquid gas and the red spot. What's that? I'm sorry, I'd forgotten you were just a youngster when all of this was going on. The red spot is the Jovian's space platform. They built it a long time ago, and then they retrogressed the way people do and forgot how they'd done it. Earth sent an engineer to see if it could be done again. The spot was pretty overpopulated. No real job of colonization could be done until we built one more. And did you? Well, we started to. Before we could really go to work anywhere, though, we had to solve the language problem. An Australian went to work on that. He'd had a background of Melanesian pigeon, and if anyone was suited to the job of crossbreeding four languages into one, he was. Four languages? Yes, English was the official language of Earth. Then there was Martian, Venusian Chat-Chat, and Spadian. It was a queer amalgam, but it could be understood by everyone, more or less. So that's where it came from. Chikra im up im chat chat too much, eh? Interplanetary beche de mer. Exactly. Only, of course, it was called beche d'espace. Me too, fella, kim kitchen bojong bye bye. But even after the language difficulty was solved, we had our troubles. They already had camels on Mars, for instance, and the Martians were amazed when we brought in more, particularly because theirs were wild and semi-intelligent, and the first thing the Martian camels did was come over and liberate their brothers from Earth. They never did come back. Same sort of thing with the raincoats on Venus. It doesn't rain down there, as we now know. It sort of mists up from the ground soaks up under a raincoat in no time. These were just petty annoyances, of course, but they were symptomatic of the way our half-baked planning operated. You didn't know about the people of Ganymede, then? No, 
we were so busy trying to build another red spot that we never did get to Jupiter's satellites. Oh, it was partly a matter of appropriations, too. The Budget Commission kept explaining to us that there was only so much money and that we'd better show a profit on what we had before we put in a request to go tooling off to colonize some new place. I guess the medians first came when you were about 10? 11, the younger man said. They scouted our colonies and came directly to Earth. They took right over and colonized us. A median overseer climbed the hill effortlessly. He was tall and tentacled, and the breathing apparatus over his head gave him the appearance of a mechanical man. Kig, kig, pinnis, the median said. You two fella all same chat chat too much. Buvava belong work. He stop long orchard pick em apple. The two men stood up and obediently walked down the hill toward the apple orchard. Why does he have to talk to us in that pigeon? The younger man asked. They all speak English as well as you and me. It's insulting. That's why they do it, I think, said Boynton, the former commissioner of colonies. They're so much better at colonizing than we were that I guess they feel they have a right to rub it in. The median had overheard them. Damn right, he said. <laughs> so... Uh, when I first read this, I had no idea where it was going. I was enjoying it. Um, but then I went back and looked at the original art on the first page, uh, illustrated by somebody named Stallman. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess there's tentacles there and what looks to be fruit. Fruit it could be apples and people harvesting uh, apples. And then there's a giant hand that's more like a tentacles. And there's a worm, and there's at the very bottom there's a man and a a, a woman, uh, nude, and I'm like, oh yes, it's the Garden of Eden story, the very, you know, the default story for every uh, science fiction comedy piece. You know, they go back in time and they end up uh, the first man and woman, or they go to another planet and they're the first man and woman. Here, it's two guys smoking a cigarette on a on a break. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, we were put in our place is how I feel like, like, it's like, uh, it, it's, 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 it's almost like a shaggy dog story, right? Because it, it seems to be going off in, uh, one direction and then we're brought short. One of the, uh, one of the things that, uh, bothers me about the illustration, mm -hmm. which, uh, you, you'll notice also in what looks like it could be hands, um, also has a woman picking the apple. Mm -hmm. you know, uh, mm -hmm. I mean, you can see, right? And, and clearly, th there's a worm in the apple. This is a Garden of Eden story. But the Garden of Eden story is about sex, yes. among other things. It's about a very deep knowledge, and it's not good to have that knowledge. And there's a reference to that. Uh, we had a little knowledge. Was it a dangerous thing, the younger man asks. It's amazing that the younger man knows nothing about Jupiter's red spot, but he still is able to recognize quotations from Pope's essay on criticism. <laughs> um, anyway, he says, was it a dangerous thing? There is no sex in this story at all. It's only about knowledge and language and power and and governmental resources. It's about politics. Can you mm -hmm. make it work? And we're so distracted by one thing, we don't notice what else is going on. Um, that I agree with you completely. It's a funny story. We are put in our place, uh, but we're in our place not because 
we were captivated by the apples and captivated by sex because we we here after all are above the orchard they're on top of the hill Mm -hmm. looking down at the orchard we're put in our place because we're so busy thinking about, about how to be us that we forget we might not be everything right right and and i think there's really a very interesting and timely message in this you know the older man um field strips a cigarette right that's exactly what people learned to do in world war Two. right they the, the the army taught people to do that so that they would be leaving nothing that would give away to the enemy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Things like how many people were there and so on. Field stripping, and Mm -hmm. that's why it's called that. The younger man has grown up in a different world, and he doesn't much care. One way to look at it is he doesn't much care because he's already been colonized. But there's another way to look at it as well. Um, He doesn't have the knowledge because... He's not looking beyond. He is not resisting the colonization. Right. He's not trying to preserve the planet. The older man still is. So I would like to point out something that may be entirely wild, Jesse. Okay. This story was published in 1956. After World War II, there was an explosion of decolonization around the world. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. The the British Empire lost huge chunks and the 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 British Raj devolved into India and Pakistan. Uh, Palestine was cut out and it devolved into Jordan and Israel. I mean, there were all sorts of decolonizations going on. One of those is the French losing their empire. Mm hmm. And in 1954, the French were finally driven out of Vietnam, decisively by the Viet Cong's victory in the Battle of Dien Bien Phu. Mm -hmm. It was on the basis of that, following the domino theory that the U.S. State Department then held, that if, if one country falls to communism, its neighbor will, and so on and so forth. It was on that basis that when France withdrew from Vietnam, Eisenhower sent in Americans to replace them. And our, that is the U.S. involvement, military involvement in Vietnam, really begins in 1954. By 1956, it's already pretty clear that the communist North is extending, talk about tentacles, extending its political power south And in fact, it's becoming a more and more communist country, which in fact, it did become long after 1956 when the U.S. finally withdrew. That last line, they were better colonizers than we were. Well, the last line is damn right. Mm -hmm. I think it's referring to what has been going on in the world since World War II. I think that the colonizers who are better at colonizing than we are are, among others, the North Vietnamese who are better at colonizing because they understand what's at stake, whereas the Americans are just holding to some 
large geopolitical theory and trying to placate all sorts of other Western powers. I think this is subtly um, a story about American failure and decolonization around the world. So and it, that's, yeah. that's, that's what the fall is from eating those apples. It's interesting because I, I, I read those same words as you did, and I didn't think about that field stripping that much. I thought a lot about the eyes of the, narr- uh, the older man telling the younger man um, as he put out his cigarette um, and didn't uh, – or just put it out in the grass – and didn't didn't snub it out properly, and I was thinking, why is he upset about that? Uh, so I focused on on not the the field stripping, but on the stubbing it out, and what that means. Like, so you're right. I, I hadn't thought about that. And leave nothing for the enemy, right? So we've got two different philosophies. One is growing up in a world where you're resisting the enemy and the other one is i'm just subsisting and it is it is very odd uh that there's so many females in the illustration when there are zero in the story um they must exist (laughs) (laughs) um but uh and one of the one of the things they always talk about the domino theory right it's not actually a theory it was a hypothesis and then we know what the results of that theory it was a bad theory right like <laughs> right. you know the the it was a it was a struggle for national uh, national freedom rather than a struggle to uh, overthrow every neighboring country at least for vietnam yes there were uh you know other countries nearby that uh were also communist but uh in a different way and that's just neighbor to neighbor stuff. It's not. It's it, it. It wasn't a colonization story like this is. And what's interesting to me also is that we've got this image of these two men taking a smoke break on a grassy hill. Uh, beneath them is the orchard where people are presumably picking apples and uh, gathering them in baskets. And then beyond that is a house, uh, a white house. With, I'm I'm visioning it uh, with pillars, so it it could be like uh, Washington D.C.'s the White House, but I'm actually thinking it's more like um, it's like a plantation house, you know. Um, and mm-hmm. these are these are field hands, aka mm-hmm. slaves, and mm-hmm. they're gathering these resources uh, to go who knows where. Could be to somewhere else on Earth could be to Ganymede, although I, I don't know what they'd want with apples, that, since they can't even breathe the same air as us. Um, that's not important. The important part is, once the overseer gets a look at them, he degrades them by pretending they're stupid so that they feel humiliated. And then he overhears them say, you know, noticing that, and he says, damn right. And it's like, wow, it, it is, it's about putting us in our place. And once you look at it like, oh, that ending is sort of abrupt and it feels like a switchover, going back to the story of, of the older man explaining how he was once in charge of, of colonizing, um, and here's how we did this planet, here's how we did that planet, they were all bad decisions, right? Like send, <laughs> sending... Uh, 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 camels to mars 
Terrible idea. Raincoats uh, that are alligator raincoats, they don't work on Venus. And the Spotians, uh, they've devolved. Well, there's a precursor of what's exactly going to happen to the humans. And lo and behold, what has happened? They get colonized. Uh, it It's about our reach exceeding our grasp, our, our, our expectations exceeding our vision. And... Uh, when, uh, when I read this with a student, she pointed out something. I don't know if you noticed this. Um, in that illustration, um, there's a bunch of apples hanging down. There's a hand that's tentacular, and there's tree and apples and the two humans standing on a hill. Um, but ab- above the hand and above the people gathering the uh, apples is an alien face. Yeah, I just I did barely that. see that. And I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. And and that made me think that it's almost like a God story as well. This is the Garden of Eden, and I guess that's what the illustrator was thinking. Um, it's apples, right? Traditional thing for it. Um, but the the God here is a jerk, and he doesn't he doesn't say like uh, I am mighty. He says no, damn right. <laughs> <laughs> and damn is the correct word. Mm-hmm. Because they have been damned. That's what happens when you get pushed out of the Garden of Eden. If you, even if you think you've been pushed up, you in fact have been pushed east. Yeah, and that house you doesn't know, belong to belong to the man who used to own it anymore. This isn't a uh, situation like is the overseer live in that place? We don't know. What we do know is it doesn't belong to the man who had it before. Right. There, there's something else. I, I think we're both noticing a, a lot of thought in this story. Mm-hmm. Um, what looks like a a little joke um, is really telling us a lot uh, that matters. You know, budget mattered, mm-hmm. right? Uh, right? Those those bad decisions that the colonizers made that you pointed to, Jesse, they all came from having too little knowledge. How could you go to Mars? You notice it has sands, you intend to colonize it and not do an adequate survey to recognize that there are indigenous cameloids. Right. Right. So the knowledge has stopped too quickly. There is that terrific quote here or reference to the quote from from Pope. I'd like to suggest something. I have no idea if the writer had this in mind. But look, it says um, this is on page 62 in our PDF. As best they could, on the that is, we made the decisions as best they could, we could, on the basis of their little knowledge. Was it a dangerous thing? The little knowledge? No, not dangerous, just inefficient. Now, that quote, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. Mm-hmm. The next line is, drink deep if you drink from the Pyrian spring. The Pyrian spring is an artesian spring that was the source of water for the muses. So all different branches of knowledge. Drink deep if you drink from the Pyrian spring. The word spring has more than one meaning, as does the word fall. What's going on here, whether it was intended by the author or not, whether it occurred in the author's subconscious, whether in fact the author was rejected, I don't know. 
But the line that the story is asking us to recall, which isn't there explicitly, is drink deep if you drink from the Pyrian spring. Mm. But these two guys, in fact, are in the fall. That's when the harvest is. It's when the harvest is. It's when apples are available, and it's what happens after you eat the apple in Eden. You are in the fall, capital T, capital mm -hmm. F. So how did we get there? How did we get there? Was too little knowledge dangerous? Even now, the guy who was a world commissioner says, no, it wasn't dangerous. <laughs> it was just inefficient. And what he still doesn't recognize is that inefficiency per se is dangerous. You can't just say, oh, well, you know, I'm doing this a little slowly. Um, I'm doing brain surgery. I'm going to take four days right. on this instead of half an hour. Inefficient is dangerous. Mm -hmm. If you don't start and, the harvest at, at, an, at a clip that will finish it in time for all the apples to be picked, you will lose part of your harvest. Exactly. And he still doesn't get it. And therefore, when the median says, damn right, they are better at colonizing because they are keeping the, the humans doing what needs to be done to make that world productive. It's, uh, it, 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 it's a very rich and deceptively well-written story because it does feel like a joke, especially you know with that shaggy dog sort of feel to it. But mm -hmm. um, on that same page, page 62, there are two examples foreshadowing what's going to happen. And he doesn't see it. He just tells the story of what he knows. And he's like, well, you know, things went wrong. And now we didn't see this coming. Well, you should have because it's all over the place. Look at this. Um, down on the first column of 62. Uh, I'd forgotten you were just a youngster when all this was going on. The red spot is the Jovian space platform. They built it a long time ago and then they retrogressed the way people do. <laughs> So there are people just like these humans here on Earth and forgot how they'd done it. Earth had sent blah, 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 right? So they forgot how to build the things that they needed to build to not be overpopulated. Okay, that's a mistake. He recognizes that people make mistakes. Next column over, um, we have an example of humans thinking camels are going to be uh, uh, what will be useful on Mars. And then we get this. They already had camels on Mars, for instance, and the Martians were amazed when we brought in more, particularly because theirs were wild and semi-intelligent, and the first thing the Martian camels did was come over and liberate their brothers from Earth. They never did come back, so all humanity has lost all the camels, these beasts of burden that we have enslaved and made our, our uh, servants um, now get liberated from other camels who were smart enough to see, hey, that's not fair. Our brothers in humps are, are enslaved. Right. And then they go away and we never see them again. It's like, it's just a series of huge mistakes, right? And then what happens? Same thing happens to you. Uh, did you, when you read that, maybe, maybe it's just me, <laughs> Jesse, did you read that about the camels and think about 
um, The Voyage to the Winhams, the fourth book in Gulliver's Travels. I didn't, although I can see why you would make that connection. Say more. Well, the thing is that a voyage that the Gulliver's Travels is, if I recall, it's either 1725 or 1726, and Essay on Criticism is 1711. Both of those stories are, among other things, about uh, the futility of thinking that we know what's right. Both Pope and Swift mm-hmm. are criticizing their imperialistic English countrymen. At the beginning of the 18th century, this is before the Industrial Revolution, but well into the period of exploration and colonial expansion. And I find it fascinating that at least two of these tropes, one with an explicit reference and one only in terms of plot devices, like, you know, the Lilliputians grabbing you and you can't do anything about it, um, and the talking animals, the, mm-hmm. that Gulliver thinks those horses are just horses, and then he finds out they take him to be the semi-intelligent variety of what they have, the unintelligent yahoos, which are human but have no language whatsoever. These two very famous pieces from the beginning of the 18th century, English men satirizing what's wrong with colonialism, and actually not what's wrong with colonialism and what it does to the colonized, but what's wrong with colonialism and what it does to the colonizers. They they both fit into this early 18th century um, view of international politics and here right after world war ii after which after all is is created uh motivated i should say in the struggle for colonizing and decolonization that's that's really what gets right i mean Mm -hmm. all of those it it starts with the first world war but it continues uninterruptedly um somewhere in the globe all the way through to 1989 um, when finally the Soviet Empire is dissolved. Uh, that's the fall of the Berlin Wall, call it 1991. From mm-hmm. about 1895 to 1991, we have this conflict of colonization and decolonization, and those people who understand their people and can keep them enlightened, they just do it better. <laughs> and in fact, right? Yeah. And, and, and that's what Ho Chi Minh did. Um, that's what, that's what um, Nehru did. Um, and this story is about that. It's written by a guy who grew up in Long Island, uh, New York, and he saw what was happening, what America was trying to do, and how it was failing. We're damned, right? Yep. And, and I keep coming back to that image uh, of the two men sitting on the hill, smoking the cigarette, one carefully taking his cigarette apart, uh, so that he will leave no trace, and the yep. other, uh, I, I I thought uh, uh, in thinking about it, I was I was like uh, the vision of the older man looking at the younger man as contempt contemptuously as he stubs it out. That's actually not true. The text just tells us we don't see it through the eyes of the older man. We see it through the narrator's eyes. I'll read it again. I see the younger man looked vague. He stubbed out his cigarette carelessly so that it continued to smolder in the grass. That's my judgment. 
of what's going on as a reader accepting the narrator, not the older man. The older man's doing this thing out of habit. The younger man's doing it because it doesn't matter. Because it's not like they can escape. The overseer's just around the corner. He's just over the hill. He sees these two layabouts. Ah, get back to work, right? No, smoke breaks over. Get get down there. Get harvesting. Um, it isn't like the older man is teaching the younger man something uh, that he needs to know. Like, you don't want to be caught by one of these overseers. <laughs> They're already caught. There's no escape. Yep. And so he's yep. not contemptuous. It's the narrator saying, like, this guy just doesn't care about this thing. It's not like things are going to catch on fire, right? It's just sitting there not doing it, – it's inefficient in a certain sense. And uh, it, it's, 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 it would be sad if it wasn't so funny. But inefficiency is potentially dangerous. Mm-hmm. And that's why, although it starts out funny – There's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.com.